Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. We are picking back up with preaching through Luke, and we'll continue through the rest of the gospel. Again, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Gary Miles. I'm one of the elders here at Kishwaukee. And I wanted to open up uh, this morning saying that um, with Pastor Eric now transitioned to his new call back home, and we are uh, in our search for our next pastor, that we're kicking off yet another new chapter today in our long history here at Kishwaukee Church. And I suppose to some extent that is true. Um, But I was reminded just this last week that really day after day, Year after year, our mission really has never changed, and that is to love God, love one another, serve one another, and share the good news of the gospel. So let that continue to be our guiding mission, despite all the changes and the transitions that are going on in the church. With that, uh, please pray with me uh, before we turn our attention to God's word. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning um, that you will open our hearts and our minds to reveal your word. Reveal that to each of us, and that this will not just be a message for the moment, but a truth by which we are changed and live out each day to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't believe I'm saying this, but way back in the 1980s, a gentleman by the name of Chester Karras began a movement that swept through corporate America like a whirlwind. Every business was clamoring to get their executives and their staff trained in this new management, what they call philosophy. You couldn't go into a manager's office without a copy in plain sight on their desk, and it was there purposely. In fact, it grew so much that it spilled over, really becoming a life philosophy that ruled most, if not every aspect, of a lot of people's lives. The title of this business-slash-life philosophy ultimately became a very famous saying. It's still invoked often today. That title was, It's not what you know, but what you negotiate. And just to emphasize this further, the actual title includes the pretext 
What he actually said was, in business, as in life, it's not what you know, but what you negotiate. This idea of negotiating life has been and continues to be an outsized influencer in this country, certainly in business, but really in many areas of life. Negotiation, as you know, is all about weighing costs and benefits for each of the parties, and ideally, seeking a mutual win-win agreement. Now, I admit the art of seeking a win-win perhaps adds a level of sophistication to negotiating. But honestly, I always thought that if anyone believed this was some new or novel philosophy, they don't understand human nature. You only have to witness any typical four-year-old at dinner time to see the art of negotiation on full display. To get our way is well embedded in our natures. By the way, judging by how those dinners usually resolve, I would say the four-year-old generally proves to be the master negotiator. At some point, the adult concludes the cost just is not worth it. Well, we all approach life, work, every kind of decision with a strong element of negotiation. Now, we're not always negotiating with another person. Often those negotiations, these cost-benefit discussions, are entirely with ourselves. Is taking a new job worth the extra effort in starting over in a career and remaking a reputation? Is it worth the cost? Is marriage really worth the investment? Is there some payback in me investing my time and energy to volunteer or help for something? Should I get a Sam's membership card or a Costco membership card, or both? There's no end to the decisions we make every day where there is not some form of negotiation going on in our heads. In today's scripture, we see Jesus suddenly stopping to address a crowd of followers, not just his disciples, but a general crowd of people wanting, they think anyway, to follow him. And Jesus launches off on what can only be described as anything but an encouraging word of what it takes to follow him. Honestly, we would call it a downer. If people thought there was some level of negotiation involved in what would be expected of them in following Jesus, he dispels that idea completely. Jesus is quite clear this is not a negotiation. Deciding to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is not a cost-benefit analysis. To make his point, Jesus states three times, if anyone does not, and then he makes a statement or a demand, and then concludes, you cannot be my disciple. You'll notice he does not say, if you don't focus on these things, or if you do not try really hard to do them, he says, does not. He also doesn't hedge by saying, you won't fully embrace discipleship, or you won't be a really committed disciple. He says, you cannot be my disciple. Again, he leaves no room for negotiation. And as we'll see, each of these three statements directly addresses an aspect of life that, taken together, encompasses who we are. And, of course, that is the point. Who are we? Are we disciples of Jesus Christ or not? Or just kind of? So I want to cover those three areas of life, and then I want to address briefly the two examples. Actually, I'm going to argue there are three that Jesus gives to make his main point, and that being that Jesus is telling us to count the cost of being his disciple. Okay, so let's go. When we last left our study of Luke some time ago, you may recall that Jesus went to eat at a Pharisee's house, and he used that opportunity, like he usually does, to challenge some of their beliefs by telling several parables. 
The last was the parable of the great banquet, which Jesus warns that not everyone would enter the kingdom, and those who refused to accept God's invitation would result in their rejection. As the parable unfolds, Jesus exposes the many excuses people will use to not accept the gracious invitation into the kingdom of heaven. So you may recall these. I have just bought a field and must go see it. I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Or this one. I just got married, so I can't come. I love how Jesus doesn't bother to elaborate further on the married couple as to why they can't come, like the other excuses. But the excuses do point directly to how shallow, even how flimsy sometimes, an excuse we will make to not committing to accepting Christ. I mean, really, does trying out your oxen really compare to eternal life with the creator and sustainer of the universe? Really? Now, I understand the married couple. That's tougher. But as we'll see later, Jesus even wants to be Lord over that. Well, Luke then follows that parable with the account we read today. And it carries on a similar theme. That being, what are we willing to give up? Or what takes priority? Or said another way, what is the cost of following Jesus? Well, here we find large crowds traveling with Jesus. Quite literally, they are following him. You can imagine the scene. Jesus is walking, surrounded by his disciples, as they walk and talk along the path, and following close behind, clumped together in groups, we find this throng of people all wanting to get a glimpse of Jesus and see what he's all about. So maybe they can join this new movement they see growing. Right? You can see this happening. These are average people that clearly have listened. They've watched Jesus and they're thinking maybe they want to be with him. To be a part of this thing that's been happening around the towns and villages as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. Then all of a sudden Jesus turns and he addresses them directly with his first stunning remark. In verse 26 he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and brother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, let me give you a visual of how people tend to react to that statement of Jesus. It stands out like a Vegas marquee sign, that word. That's what we immediately focus on, the word hate. We don't like that word coming from Jesus, and we especially don't like it in the context of our family. You know, this community is a special place for a lot of reasons, but one particular reason is a really strong sense of families. In first century Judea, that was absolutely true as well. Family was their heritage, was their future. They had a strong sense of community that was built on the foundation of families. So you can imagine how this kind of a statement would have been received. A couple of months ago, Brenda and I were visiting our grandkids in Iowa, and I was reading a story to the oldest grandchild. I don't really remember what the story was even about now, but something came up in that book, and we discussed it for a little bit. And then I said, oh, I hate that. And my five-year-old granddaughter, in her sweet voice, says in response to me, Grandpa, hate is a strong word. We should be careful how we use that word. At that point, I didn't feel I would be taking the high road by telling her, Jesus used that word. <laughs> don't, you hate, don't you love it less when your five-year-old grandchild teaches you a moral lesson? 
Well, I'm going to pull the Greek card here because it's necessary, I think, for a fuller understanding of that word in context. So the word translated as hate in Greek is meseo, and while it certainly can be used as how we use the word hate, it more generally is used in term, uh, as a term to love something or something less, to renounce one choice in favor of another, or as a moral comparative, elevating one value over another. You see, it's, a, its meaning is a comparative one. Now, our language falls short in this area. English tends to describe things in the extremes. For example, I love Brenda. I love my kids. I love our grandkids. I love our house. I love bratwurst and potato salad. I love the Packers. I hate the Bears. You get the idea. Sorry to you Bear fans. I really love them last, actually. I don't really hate them. English doesn't deal well with the degrees of love we have for things and for people. I suppose we could assign a convention like love to the first degree and love to the second degree and so on, but how romantic would that be on a date saying, honey, I love you to the second degree? So we don't do that. So Jesus is not saying to despise and detest your parents. For one thing, it would violate the fifth commandment, and I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't do that. But what Jesus is saying is that to be a follower of him, to be his disciple, we need to be placing priority in our loves, priority in what we cherish. And that priority is on Jesus Christ, not parents, not spouses, not kids, not siblings. In other words, following Jesus takes priority over our family life. Again, following Jesus takes priority over our family life. Now, I know you all love your families. I do too. But the challenge Jesus is raising for us is when it comes to a decision, when there's some conflict, when a choice is necessary, who are you going to elevate over the other? That's tough, and that's a cost. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further. He then says, same verse, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean? Well, he goes on to explain exactly what he means. He does not want to be ambiguous. He also wants to make it clear there's no room for negotiation here. So in verse 27, Jesus says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean to carry your cross, or some might say to take up your cross? Notice he does not say, take up my teachings and follow me, or take up my example. By the way, just try taking up the Sermon on the Mount and truly follow it. I dare you. If you think you are, you haven't read it. Love your enemies. Looking at a woman with lust is adultery. Anger akin to murder. How about this? Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Or how about forgive and forgive and forgive and how many times were we supposed to forgive? As I said, just try following Jesus' teachings. I only pray I could follow even one, but I know it's impossible. And of course it is impossible. It must be in order that we rely on Jesus. So what does it mean to carry your cross? Well, Henry Sweet 
this professor of divinity at Cambridge at the turn of the 20th century, he described it very simply this way. To take up your cross means to put yourself in the place of the condemned criminal. That's what the cross was for, right? Well, that condemned criminal, of course, is Jesus. Paul speaks of this in numerous letters. For example, in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or in 2 Corinthians 4.11, he says it more succinctly, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Every day, remind yourself you have died in Christ, and yet Christ lives in you. In other words, you are walking in the shadow of the cross. Now, I need to say this. To hate even your own life does not mean a sort of self-loathing. It's really more a self-centeredness. Jesus calls us to self-forgetfulness. C.S. Lewis and others put it this way as not thinking less about yourself, but about yourself less. Or more to the point, thinking about Jesus more. Elevating Jesus over yourself. It means following Jesus takes priority even over our own life. Okay, so as disciples, Jesus must take priority over our family life and over our own life. So what's left? Well, just in case they did not fully understand yet, Jesus puts an exclamation point on it in verse 33. He says, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So if you think there is anything in your life Jesus does not want to be lowered over, think again. He says, We must give up everything. So family life, our own life. And third, I'm going to call it Following Jesus takes priority over our personal life. That means everything in our life. Possessions, money, relationships, work, play, everything. I want to share a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book aptly uh, titled The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a mid-20th century theologian in Germany who stood up to the Nazis when the church would not. He ultimately was executed for uh, being accused of his involvement in a plot to kill Hitler. By the way, if you happen to read this book, and I really would encourage it, uh, but be warned, it's not light reading, you will be moved by the courage and conviction of this man. It's really quite amazing. Well, he writes this. If our Christianity has ceased to be serious about discipleship, if we have watered down the gospel into emotional uplift, which makes no costly demands, then we cannot help regarding the cross as an ordinary, everyday calamity, as one of the trials and tribulations of life. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and to the fullest. Only a person thus so totally committed in discipleship can experience the meaning of the cross. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. The cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Okay, so Jesus has laid out the terms. 
But remember, the central point of this passage is Jesus' warning to count the cost of doing just what we talked about. Now, I can't count the cost for you all. Honestly, I'm not sure I always know how to count the cost for myself. But now that we understand the terms, the question becomes, what is our response? And this is where the examples Jesus lays out for the crowd, I believe, really are helpful. So I want to briefly take a look at those. The first is the builder. So pick it up in verse 28. Jesus begins, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? He then describes the fear of being ridiculed for not completing it. The implication, of course, is the builder chooses not to build, knowing he cannot follow through to completion. You don't have to look far within our own area to see buildings, homes, projects started but not finished. And it's hard, really, not to question what happened. Our natural reaction is, didn't they consider what it would take, what it would cost to finish the project? Now, in life, things change, and there are extenuating circumstances that arise, so don't take the analogy too far. But because of the risk of not being able to complete the tower, Jesus is telling us that unless the builder first knows he can carry it through to completion, he will not build. And that's the first type of response one might make to following Jesus. No, the cost is just too high. I can't really follow Jesus to that extent. And they turn away. I wonder how many in that crowd following Jesus that day listened to what he said listened to what he was asking of them, and decided right then and there to turn away and go home. Now, you all are here because you've made a decision to follow Christ. But how many friends and family do you know that have weighed the cost of following him and said, no, the price is too high? I guess I can only say we need to remain a light for those people in the world that desperately needs the light of Christ. Jesus then gives a second example of a different response. The king. So let's start in verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first, it's the first again. By the way, using that first in this example and the other one, he's making a point that that is the first thing we need to do is count the cost. It's key, that's going to be key when we look at the third example as well. Won't he f- I'm going to continue. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. This is the response I worry about the most. You see, the king recognized he could not win the battle. He could not bear the cost. So what he does is negotiate. He offers a compromise of terms for peace. He doesn't want to surrender totally, but is willing to give something in order to gain something. But Christ's terms are nothing short of total surrender. He's asking us to give up our will for his, that that we would die, that he lives in us. There is no negotiation. As I said, this is the response I fear most. As Christians, we... We too often profess we are following Christ, but we tend to do that at a comfortable distance. I know there's a need there, but I just can't afford to commit to that. I have other responsibilities too. You see how easily we fall into negotiating a peace settlement, a lower cost? 
I'm busy with my family. I'm really busy at work. Kids are in a lot of activities right now. I'm working on my degree. Maybe I could just, you fill in the blank. That crowd following Jesus no doubt had people whose immediate reaction to his words were, I'm sure he doesn't really mean to literally give up my life. I'll follow him, see how it goes. Of course, he is important, but surely he wants me to continue on with my farming or fishing or whatever. Now, I realize this is stepping into sensitive territory here. These are hard teachings of Jesus. And please don't misunderstand me. I know life is challenging. We make decisions and trade-offs all the time to try and juggle all these good things in life. And that is all very good. So let me just say this. Jesus warns us to count the cost of following him, not because he wants to pull you away from all those very good things. It's because he wants to pull you into something that's more beautiful. A commitment to him that will put new life and meaning into all those things, into everything else in our lives. But there is a cost, and it's non-negotiable. Now, I said I believe there are really three examples, not two. So you may notice in your version of the Bible, verses 34 and 35 are set aside as a different section. I, I believe the ESV is that way, even if not. When you first read these verses, they feel like they're kind of coming out of left field. They're just kind of thrown in there. But I want to call this the third example, and I'm calling it the tempered Christian. So tempered is an interesting word. In working with metals, tempering is a process of heating for a long time, a very hard and brittle metal, such the exposure to heat over time makes the metal tougher and less brittle, more resilient. Same is true for tempered glass. That toughness allows it to withstand more shock, more stress. But that word tempered also means to soften or to lessen or to moderate. Quite a different meaning than making something tougher and more resilient. In verse 34, Jesus throws in this statement then. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Throughout the New Testament, saltiness is used to explain the mark of a discipleship and their allegiance to Jesus and the gospel. But here Jesus warns of losing that saltiness. So as I said, I see this as the third example of someone who initially does count the cost or believes they have. But over time, that cost mounts and the heat of suffering for Jesus takes its toll. And the once committed Christian begins to lose their saltiness. They begin to pull away. I said in the previous example, it's the one I fear the most. This is the one that breaks my heart. I expect we all know people, or friends, maybe even family, that once were walking strongly with the Lord, but have since fallen away from him and the church. Now, I know there can be many reasons for that, many of which sadly fall on the church. But it also can simply be that they may not have first truly counted the cost of following him. So the question we must ask ourselves each day as we carry our cross, whatever that is for Jesus, will the heat that comes, and make no mistake, Jesus warned us we would suffer for him, will that heat temper us to be tougher, more resilient, more salty, therefore more committed to following Christ? Or will it soften us? 
lessen or moderate our commitment to Christ. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, how can anyone actually commit totally to Christ like that? Life, everything, unconditional. Sounds like religious fanaticism. Well, at the end of the day, at the end of my life, I can't think of anything more glorious than to be accused of being a fanatic for Jesus Christ and found guilty. But of course, it is hard. So let me conclude with some encouraging words for you. First, it takes time. Talk to anyone who's been walking with the Lord for decades, and they're going to tell you every day is a struggle, and it's just a continuous process of sanctification is the word. It's a step each day. Take that daily step, carrying your cross, again, whatever it is. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. Second, the Holy Spirit is changing you. You are not changing you. So open your heart and ask him to work in you, to conform your will to Jesus. Ask him to do that more and more every day. Third, here's one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. It reminds me again and again what's really at stake. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Following Christ is of infinite importance. Is it any wonder the cost is equally high? Let me close uh, with a story about a friend. He had a very successful career. It's kind of one of mid-career kind of time for him. It was going very well, but he worked within the confines of what I would call a secular office. And as God continued to grow his faith over time, over the years, he felt led to quit who he was working for. And he started his own business, and he dedicated how he worked fully to the Lord. His faith and scripture guided how he did everything in his work and all of his customers, how he dealt with them. Well, in preparing for this message, I asked him, that was a huge risk. How did you just decide to risk everything and give up all that security you had? His, His answer was remarkably simple. He said, He never felt it really cost him anything. You see, when you love Jesus to the first degree, you don't actually see it as a cost. Let's pray. Lord, I know this is a hard teaching. Uh, You ask us to follow you, to be committed to you, but to first count the cost of that commitment. I pray that you would shape our hearts to trust you in following you, to bend our wills to yours, that we would joyfully carry our cross, whatever it is, wherever it leads, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.